0: Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com H-M-M-E. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Audible encourages us to give you a book recommendation. And so for this episode, I am going to recommend to you Destiny Disrupted, A History of the World Through Islamic Eyes by Tamin Ansari, narrated by the author themselves. If you don't have any kind of grounding knowledge in the history of the Middle East, this is a great book to get started. It's where I started much of my research, and it's where I go back to when starting most of these episodes. So you can go to audibletrial.com H-M-M-E to get a free audiobook and check out Destiny Disrupted. That's audibletrial.com H-M-M-E, and once again, that is audibletrial.com slash H-M-M-E. Hey there, everyone. My name is Grant, and you're listening to the History of the Modern Middle East, Episode 8, The Age of Liberation. Okay, so in the last episode, we got through the Tripolitanian War, in which both Italy and the Ottoman Empire bungled their way into a conflict that neither of them was prepared for ending with an Italian victory on paper, though still fighting Arab tribesmen on the ground. The war ended somewhat abruptly, because the Ottomans had to turn their attention northward because the Balkan states decided to dogpile on the Turks while their back was turned. Now as much as I want to push the Turkish arc of the story forward, I'm afraid I'm going to need to backtrack the narrative again for an episode or so. I need to do this because in order to fully grasp how much the Balkan wars destabilized both Europe and the Ottoman Empire, We need to understand the centuries worth of history before it, so that's what we're going to do. However, I'm not covering the entirety of the Balkans. What I'm covering is Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia, Montenegro, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Greece. If you look at a map of the Balkans, you'll notice I'm not covering Croatia and Slovenia. And that's because those two portions were part of the Habsburg Empires rather than the Middle East-centered Ottoman Empire. However, I'm also not covering Macedonia and Albania. For Macedonia, the reason is that my university library has little information on modern Macedonia. You go to that section and it's entirely about the Hellenistic period. But on top of that, most of what's going on in Macedonia is similar to what's going on in neighboring Greece, Bulgaria, and Serbia. When it comes to the Albanians, on the other hand, it's due to the complexity of the history. Now, the entirety of Balkan history is a lot messier than the rest of Europe's history in terms of creating a straightforward narrative, but Albania is a lot harder. As difficult as parsing the intercommunal networks existing throughout the rest of the Balkans, Albania is another beast entirely. Most of the books I've come across refer to the groupings of peoples in Albania as tribes, and that word is somewhat problematic, and for the time being, I'm just going to square everything in my head. I may come back to Albania in a future episode, But for the time being, I'm just going to include it as little as needed. So with all that out of the way, let's get started with the episode proper. The 19th century is referred to as the Age of Liberation within Balkan historiography, due to the nations of the Balkans all gaining independence for the first time since before the Byzantine Empire, and despite the fall of the Byzantines in 1453, their cultural influence has left a strong mark on the region in terms of religion and language. Within Balkan nationalisms, religion was a major factor, not just in differentiating themselves from their Islamic rulers, but also to differentiate Balkan Christians from one another. Under the rule of the Byzantines, the Greek-speaking Orthodox Church was the dominant one within the empire, and after the capture of Constantinople, it was one of the best-functioning institutions left over from it. So the Ottoman Turks decided to use the Orthodox Church as an administrative apparatus for the governance of the Christians in the Balkans. This meant that Greek language, education, and religion were pushed on non-Greeks within the empire. This resulted in a trans-Balkan administrative class of Greeks, who identified more as Romans than as Greeks or any other nationality. It wouldn't be until the 18th century that we start to see the other Balkan nationalities begin to assert their own identities over the Ottoman-compelled Greeks. During the Enlightenment, the deeply rich folklore of the Balkans began to be written down consisting of stories about local and national heroes fighting off Arabs or Turks in defense of their homes in Christendom, which played a cultural role in resistance to the Ottomans and the rise of nationalism. Equally important was differentiating of the Balkan peoples from each other, and this is where language revival came into place. Since most of the population were peasants, there wasn't much in terms of standardized linguistics, but rather major families of languages, those being Greek, Romanian, South Slavic, and Albanian. However, these languages finally start to solidify as printing press technology became more widely available within the Ottoman Balkans. Writers and printers wanted to be able to write and read things in their own language, and they wanted these languages used and taught in schools, rather than the continued use of Greek. Despite their language being used for the administrative functions of the empire, the Greeks were having their own cultural battles within their own spheres. The Greek populations of the Ottoman Empire had two competing cultures vying for control. There was the legacy of Byzantine Greek and the legacy of Hellenist Greek. Those who embraced Byzantine Greek looked more at Christian solidarity of the Balkans and sought Russia as their patron great power, while those who embraced the Hellenist Greek past looked at the Enlightenment liberalism of Britain and France and tended to seek Greek identity as separate from that of the rest of the Balkans. Who had their own identities to resolve. Among the peoples speaking a South Slavic dialect were the Serbians. The choice for the Serbs was to embrace the Ottoman-controlled Greek Orthodox Church, or to embrace the only Orthodox Church not under foreign control, the Russian Orthodox Church. The Serbs ended up siding with the Russians due to their linguistic similarities, along with a large number of Serbian theological students studying in Kiev, which resulted in a lot of Russian words entering the Serbian vocabulary. The different Balkan nationalities also had other considerations for their pursuance of nationalism, such as what the borders of their theoretical nation should be. The most common tool for this was history. Across the Balkans, historians looked at what territories have possessed substantial populations of their peoples for long periods of time. They looked at historic battles fought between themselves and the invading Turks, such as the Battle of Kosovo, which made the city a nearly holy one to the Serbians, despite the fact that today a majority of people in Kosovo are Muslim. Despite these changes in demographics, the history has made certain nationalities desire certain territory, regardless of who is living there now. The 18th century enlightenment may have been the intellectual fuel for the reawakening of Balkan cultural identities but the recording and disseminating of oral traditions requires some financial power as well. The 18th century saw not only the intellectual revival of the Balkans, but it also saw an economic revival, which simultaneously inspired and funded the Cultural Awakening. This economic revival was fueled by increased trade between the Ottoman Empire and the rest of Europe with the Treaty of Karlowitz in 1699 which not only ended fighting with the Habsburg Empire and set concrete borders for the Ottoman Empire in Europe, it also contained provisions for trade between the two of them. The Russians would also conquer the northern coast of the Black Sea, which became a hub for grain production and export, which needed to go through the Dardanelles to reach markets in Western Europe. This increased the amount of trade by sea and by land that passed through and by the Balkans, and the Balkan Christians would become the intermediaries between Europe and the Ottomans. Non-Muslims were the biggest beneficiaries of increased trade between Europe and the Ottomans. The reason for this was a cultural difference between the Christians and Muslims in the Balkans. Muslims in the Balkans tended to invest their resources into land either by growing crops or raising livestock. Because so much of the land was owned by Muslim rulers, the Christians and Jews in the empire had to engage in other industries in order to make ends meet. Jews, Greeks, and Armenians were especially adept at seagoing trade and so benefited as middlemen for the trade of manufactured goods of Europe into the Middle East. On the other hand, other Balkan Christians engaging in overland trade sold their crops, livestock, or natural resources into Europe, while their Muslim neighbors usually produced their goods for a domestic market. The Christians that weren't involved in the exchange or export of the goods between Europe and the Ottomans had another business route available to them, that of Dragomans. Dragomon were polyglots with knowledge of foreign laws and culture. They served as translators and guides for Europeans trying to do business in the Ottoman Empire, or with the Ottomans engaging in diplomatic relations with Europe. The Dragomon were very useful to the Europeans because despite being legally allowed to trade in the Ottoman Empire, there were a lot of eccentricities that the Empire had that the Europeans needed to know how to navigate. So not only did the dragomans serve as interpreters for Europeans, they also advised them on who they needed to bribe to get any business done. Now, it's very easy to let what I've just talked about seem all-encompassing of the Balkans, but in reality, the intellectual and economic revival was mostly limited to the middle and upper classes, and they formed only a small portion of the overall population. The vast majority of Balkan Christians were peasants either working as tenants on someone's land, or if they were lucky, they had a small plot of land for themselves. When the French Revolution spread its ideas across Europe, most Balkan Christians were concerned with their material situation on the ground, rather than any pie-in-the-sky notion of nationhood, and thus their first revolutions would be more concerned with that, and luckily for these Balkan populations, they had a veteran fighting men available. The Treaty of Sistova, signed in 1791, ended a war between the Habsburgs and the Ottoman Empire. In this war, the Austrians had assistance from volunteer militias in Serbia who chose to fight on the side of the Christian European power against the Ottomans. The treaty granted no gains to the Serbs despite their service with the Austrians, so right off the bat we have two problems that were left to linger. A distrust of the Austrians and Ottomans on part of the Serbs, and a population of freely roaming Serbs with combat experience and these betrayed and bored Serbs would serve as the vanguard of revolution when it finally broke out. However, despite the lack of statements of rights or gains for the Serbs in the Treaty of Sistova, the Sultan was interested in gaining the peace and loyalty of his Christian subjects. And here we see our old friend from episode 1, Sultan Selim III. Now, if you'll recall from episode 1, Selim III was a reformer, or at least he tried to be, But during his reign, he was constantly being undermined by the Janissaries. During this time, he tried putting into law the right for Serbians to collect their own taxes, form their own militias, and to hold local Ottoman authorities accountable for abuses of power. And this is where the Janissaries come into the story of the Balkans. The Janissaries had been a thorn in the side of sultans for over a century, constantly demanding more privileges, all the while abandoning more and more responsibilities. Anytime a sultan would attempt to reform or abolish the Janissaries, they would threaten to, and in numerous cases did, overthrow the sultan and place a new one on the throne. In order to minimize the damage they could do to his regime, Selim III tended to deploy the Janissaries far away from the capital, and he deployed many of them to the Balkans, where their corruption clashed with a population that was already discontent from being ruled by Muslim conquerors. Because of the Janissaries, Selim III's reforms couldn't be implemented in Serbia, And this is what would spark the first Serbian revolution. The Janissaries had been stationed in the Serbian city of Belgrade, but during the war with Austria they were driven out, and the Austrians occupied the city until the end of the war. So when the war was over, the Janissaries were physically out of the city, and one of the provisions of the treaty forbid the Janissaries from occupying the city. But a rebellious governor wanted them back in order to assert his de facto autonomy from the Sultan. So, in 1797, the Janissaries launched an attack on Belgrade, but were resisted by the Serbian militias allowed to form within the city, most of whom were veterans from the recent war. They successfully defended the city and formed an alliance with the Sultan in order to put down the Janissaries in Serbia. During the conflict, the Ottomans made peace with the Janissaries at one point, who shortly thereafter tried to kill the Serbian leadership, which caused another uprising against them. They found a leader in the man, Kara George. For any Serbians who may be listening, that's the anglicized version of his name, which I'm using because my mouth doesn't know how to make the sound you guys are trying to make with the Latin alphabet. Anyways, with a new leader in place, the Serbs continued their fight with the Janissaries, all the while negotiating with the Sultan to maintain the rights granted to them by Selim III. As the Serbs garnered success on the battlefield, the Sultan grew more concerned about them than the Janissaries. In 1805, the Ottoman government troops began fighting with Serbian militias, but by the end of 1806, the Serbians managed to take control of the entire province, doing so with the aid of Russia, who had declared war on the Ottomans earlier that year. In 1807, they faced the options of joining Russia to fight for full independence or accept an Ottoman offer at autonomy within the empire. The Serbs didn't trust the Ottomans, so they sided with the Russians. This seemed like it would work until Russia made peace with the Ottomans in 1812 in response to Napoleon's invasion of Russia that year. The First Revolution came to an end in 1813 when the Ottomans reoccupied Serbia, and the government formed by Kara George went into exile in Austria. The situation was not all rosy for the Ottomans, though. Shortly after reoccupying the province, they withdrew most of their regular troops, who were outnumbered by the local Serbians who were still armed. Another Serbian leader popped up to replace Kara George, Milos Obrenovic. Initially Milos tried to collaborate with the Ottomans, offering to put down a smaller Serbian revolt that broke out in 1814. However, the new sultan, Mahmud II, was not going to collaborate with a former rebel leader. So when the rebellion was put down and the leaders were executed, a second revolution was put into motion under Milos's command. This second revolution broke out in 1815, and the international situation was more favorable to them by this point. Since the wars of Napoleon were finally over and the Ottomans didn't want to spark another war that would force European intervention, they settled with the Serbians, granting them autonomy within the empire and recognizing Serbia as a principality rather than an Ottoman province. Becoming a principality meant that Serbia needed a Christian prince, and Milos would be elected, beginning the Obrenovic dynasty, which would rule with an iron fist. A rivalry would begin between the Obrenović dynasty and the family of Kara George, who had fled into exile, that would last until the 20th century. Milos would order assassinations of political opponents whom he felt were becoming too powerful. He ignored the special assembly that the Serbian government had been operating with since Kara George. He used his powers to force landowners in Serbia to sell him their property at any price he demanded, and forced people into labor for him. One of the biggest grievances against him was his usage of the common lands for his own swine herds, because swine herding was the biggest national industry in Serbia. And the prince, who had his own lands to herd on, was using what was supposed to be used by the peasantry. There were attempts to limit his power in the 1830s, first when a law code was adopted in 1830, and later in 1835 when an assassination conspiracy against him was discovered. Only after that did he agree to a constitution, however the constitution that was issued was very complicated and some believe intentionally so in order to ensure that the common persons couldn't use it against the prince. Despite all these illiberal practices, the French and the British supported Milos as a regional counterweight to the Ottomans and Russians. The Russians had a lot of influence in Serbia and sought to use that influence to undermine the prince's growing power. When Milos discovered this, he tried to stir up a revolt within Serbia to expel Russian agents, but this failed. And the Russian consul in Belgrade forced Milos to resign in favor of his eldest son, Milan, who would be crowned Prince in June of 1839. Milan was an ill man of 20, and died less than a month into his reign, at which point his younger brother, Michael, was crowned as Prince. Michael was only 17 at the time, but he was very progressive for the time period, and in fact too progressive for the Serbian peasantry. He implemented reforms to the education of Serbian clergy, census taking, the construction of national theater, and some legal reforms. These reforms required additional taxation to fund them, which obviously angered the peasantry. The enemies of Michael and the Obrenovic dynasty used the dissatisfaction within Serbia to depose the prince who left into exile in Austria. They then elected in his place the only living son of Kara George, Alexander, who founded the Kara Georgevich dynasty in 1842. Under Prince Alexander, Serbia saw an improvement in internal infrastructure, such as the improvement and extension of existing roads and numerous public works projects. But his indecisive foreign policy would be his undoing. During the revolutions of 1848, he kept Serbia neutral, all the while Serbians in Hungary were begging him to intervene on their behalf against the Hungarians. In the short term, this policy was a good choice, because when the Romanians intervened in the revolutions of 1848, they suffered from an invasion and occupation by the Austrians, who reduced the local military to a rump of its former self. They would also remain neutral during the Crimean War, for which they were rewarded by having the Russian Tsar lose his formal title of Protector of Serbia which granted them some formal rights. However, the people of Serbia were not happy with this, feeling that Alexander was appealing to the Catholic and German Austrians rather than allying himself with the Orthodox and Slavic Russians. In 1858, the Serbian Senate, which was part of the governing apparatus of Serbia since the 1830s, demanded Alexander's resignation. In his place, they brought back the former Prince Milos, thus restoring the Obrenovich dynasty in 1858. Most of the powers of Europe were supportive of the return of Milos, favoring him for his astute foreign policy, even if he did return to his tyrannical means of governance. Luckily for Serbia, they didn't have to live with Milos for too long, because he would die two years later in 1860, and was then succeeded by his son, the former Prince Michael, who returned from exile in Austria. Michael had learned much from his travels and his previous tenure as prince, and would now proceed with his preferred progressive policies more cautiously, and made sure to do so within the confines of the law. Under his rule, all taxpayers were given the right to vote, and the military was reformed along western lines. Like his father, he was adept at foreign policy, negotiating the withdrawal of all Ottoman forces from Serbia in 1867, And beginning the work for a federation of Balkan states. Unfortunately, he would be assassinated in June of 1868 by sympathizers of the Kara Georgevich dynasty. No immediate gains were made for the rival dynasty, as Michael was succeeded by Milan II, a grand-nephew of Milos. Milan II was only 13 at the time of his ascent, and therefore he was not too concerned with governance he instead spent his hours seeking pleasure in hunting and gambling. Fortunately for Serbia, the negative impact of these irresponsible habits were mostly felt by the prince himself, who would have the distinct honor to be the reigning sovereign during the Balkan crisis and the Russo-Turkish War in the 1870s. But from here we are going to backtrack, because we need to cover a few more countries before the episode is over. As we covered earlier, prior to the Greek War of Independence in 1821, the Greeks were used as administrators across the Ottoman-controlled Balkans. This resulted in many of the early struggles for independence to be almost as anti-Greek as they were anti-Muslim. In Greece itself, there was the division between those embracing the Hellenistic past of Athens or the Byzantine past of Constantinople. The former of those focused on Greek nationhood, while the latter emphasized a restoration of the Byzantine Empire across the entirety of the Balkans. A revolt in the principalities of Moldova and Wallachia in the 1820s removed the local Greek dynasties out of power, all the while the Greeks were fighting their own war of independence. The war for independence began as a revolt against a dissident Ottoman governor of Greece, who sought to carve out his own domain separate from the Sultan in Constantinople. However, this governor still wanted the government to be Islamic, which the Orthodox Greeks were not going to accept in an independent state. So they first rebelled against the governor Ali Pasha, who was assassinated in February of 1822. The first period of the war, going from 1821 to 1824, was very successful for the Greeks. By the end of 1822, most of the Peloponnese, which is southern Greece, was under Greek control except for a handful of fortified cities where Muslim landowners had fled. And from there the revolt spread into central Greece and the Aegean, In response to the rebellions in Greece proper, the Ottomans engaged in indiscriminate slaughter of Greeks in Constantinople and other Aegean islands. These atrocities attracted a lot of international attention, which sparked a large number of foreign combatants to make their way to Greece to fight the Ottoman Turks. Having nowhere else to turn, Sultan Mahmud II turned to his Albanian Pasha in Egypt, Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali had a strong and well-disciplined army, trained by the French. He was a growing Islamic power in his own right, and therefore demanded concessions from the Sultan in Constantinople in exchange for his help. Muhammad Ali demanded that he be given control of the island of Crete and be made the Pasha of the Peloponnese. Mahmud II agreed to these terms, and Muhammad Ali then sent his forces to occupy Crete, which would serve as his base of operations. Leading the Egyptian forces into Greece in 1825 was Ibrahim Pasha, who enacted a systematic massacre to exterminate the Greeks and drive them out of the territory that had been promised to him. They managed to capture numerous cities that had been captured by the Greeks, and relieved numerous cities that were under siege. In response to the massacres of the Greeks by Egyptian forces, a triple alliance of Great Britain, France, and Russia are forced to intervene in 1827. At first, they engaged the Ottomans and Egyptians at sea, but in 1828, open war broke out between Russia and the Turks. When the Russians invaded the Balkans and arrived with an earshot of Constantinople, the Ottomans accepted the Treaty of Adrianople in 1829. The Treaty of Adrianople guaranteed that Greece would exist as an independent nation-state, however its territorial boundaries wouldn't be determined until 1832. This treaty limited the territorial extent of Greece to everything south of a line that went from the Gulf of Arta to the Gulf of Volo. This excluded a majority of what is modern Greece and resulted in a majority of ethnic Greeks living outside of Greece. Because of this, Greece was born with a foreign policy goal of expanding into all of the lands where Greeks formed a majority of the population. Now, now, Greece could have been made bigger at the start, but the British were afraid of it becoming a puppet or satellite of the Russians, and therefore threatened Turkish control of the Dardanelles, allowing Russians to have open access to the Mediterranean. During the war itself, the Greeks had trouble forming a national government. This was partly due to rival factions trying to control said government, but it was largely due to the nature of the Greek revolt. Unlike the Serbian revolutions which were led by a single strongman, the Greek Revolution was started at a local level, with different factions building around a locality or around a single personality. After the war, the great powers determined that Greece should be a monarchy under the rule of a hereditary prince. This prince should also not belong to any of the ruling families of France, Russia, or Great Britain in order to maintain their neutrality which is why a Bavarian prince, Otto, was selected. Otto and his court were Roman Catholics, which resulted in some tension between the population and the government. But even without this, Greece was just a mess at the time. After centuries of neglect, followed by a decade of war, the country was in shambles. Crime was high and there was a lot of irregular soldiers who had nothing to do. Otto's government tried to disband the irregular soldiers by either incorporating them into a regular army or to send them back into civilian life. However, these veterans didn't want to wear Bavarian uniforms and take orders from a Catholic monarch, so many of them became brigands. The Bavarians tried to replace the centuries-old localized government of the Greeks with a highly centralized German one. This resulted in centralization of tax collection, meaning that local authorities couldn't skim tax money away from the capital. The common lands were made property of the crown, who also gave itself a monopoly on the salt trade. They created an educational system that, at least on paper, would carry a Greek child from elementary school to university. However, this was only on paper. There was also a heavy censorship of the media. The most unpopular measure the new monarch implemented was ecclesiastical when the Greek church was made independent of the Patriarch of Constantinople. Now, the other peoples in the Balkans had been upset with the Patriarchate of Constantinople because it forced Greek language and culture on them. But in Greece itself, this wasn't a problem. So, in their eyes, separating from the church in Constantinople wasn't necessary. The peasantry, as well as disposed clergymen in Greece, were angry and called the separation a Catholic plot to make the Greek subjects of the Pope. The internal politics of greece at this time were centered around factions seeking and receiving help from the foreign powers of france russia and britain the french party was a nationalist one supporting a policy of territorial expansion at the expense of the ottomans rivaling the french party was the british party who preferred a policy of internal development the french supported king otto but the russians and the british would grow tired of him the russians because of his catholicism and the British because of his autocracy. This alignment of interests resulted in the Russian and British factions orchestrating a revolution against the power of Otto in 1843. On September 3rd, the army around Athens, with popular support of the people of the capital, rose up against the king and demanded the creation of a constitution and the expulsion of the Bavarian officials within the government. Otto accepted the demands of the army, and like that, he became a constitutional monarch. The French party was the most supportive of the king who came into power after the revolution, but its policies of national expansion irritated the Ottomans to the point where they expelled Greek diplomats from the country and forbade Greek ships from entering Ottoman ports. The pro-French attitudes of the post-revolution government annoyed the British to the point where they used a flimsy excuse from a holder of Greek bonds in Gibraltar to invade and occupy a couple islands off southern Greece. This was extremely unpopular with the international community, which resulted in the British backing down and returning the islands. This incident backfired on the British, as Otto and the French party became even more popular because of it. Another crisis erupted during the Crimean War, when the Greeks wanted to support the Russians in their claim of protectorate ship over Christians in the Ottoman Empire. They attempted to invade some bordering territories in Ottoman Greece, but failed spectacularly. This resulted in the Ottomans giving an ultimatum to the Greek government to punish the officers responsible for the non-sanctioned attack. France was so angry at Greece's actions that they wanted to depose King Otto as well, but the British, who also supported France and the Ottomans, were not willing to go that far yet. Instead, they simply compelled Otto to observe strict neutrality. The divisions between King Otto and the people of Greece would finally come to a head during the Austro-Italian War of 1859. King Otto, a German, supported the Austrians in the conflict, while the masses supported the Italians. In support of his preferred faction, Otto had newspapers supporting the Italians censored. By this point, an entire generation of Greeks were accustomed to democratic rule, and this blatant autocratic practice wouldn't stand. While Otto was on a cruise in 1862, the army mutinied and the deposition of Otto was announced in Athens. Rather than start a civil war, Otto left Greece forever, but continued to refer to himself as King of Greece for the remainder of his life. Prince George of Schleswig-Holstein was chosen to succeed Otto as King of Greece, despite the fact that the people of Greece preferred Prince Albert, the second son of Queen Victoria. This was done in order to keep the agreement that the King of Greece shouldn't be from the royal families of France, Britain, or Russia. To make it up to the Greeks, the British returned control of the Ionian Islands to them, which they had been occupying since the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Prince George would prove to be a very practical monarch, and because of that, he would reign for the next 50 years, seeing Greece through the crisis of the 1870s and the Balkan Wars. From there, we backtrack again to cover Romania, Before Romania was Romania, it was three pieces, Transylvania, which was part of the Habsburg Empire, and Moldova and Wallachia, two principalities within the Ottoman Empire. For the purposes of this narrative, we are going to focus on the latter two. During the period of economic and cultural revival in the Balkans, Moldova and Wallachia were under the rule of Greek families, while the Russians were given a kind of protectorate over the principalities. An uprising in the 1820s forced the Greek princes out of power, to which the Ottomans responded by placing Romanian notables as princes. Another gain was made when the Russians negotiated an agreement with the Ottomans to have the princes elected by local noblemen. The Romanians also benefited from the Treaty of Adrianople in 1829, which had granted the Greeks independence. The treaty called for the removal of all Turkish landowners and soldiers from Moldovia and Wallachia. By this point, the only connection between the Ottoman Empire and Romania was the payment of tribute to Constantinople. Otherwise, the Romanians were, in all other respects, independent. Over the following decades, the principalities would struggle to gain independence from their protectorate status with Russia. Initially, the two provinces had separate governments, but in the 1860s, their respective noblemen decided to elect the same man as prince of both principalities, who then proceeded to govern the two as though they were one. Because the Romanians gained control over their internal affairs so quickly, it's best that I move on to the next country, Bulgaria. Being the closest to Constantinople, the Bulgarians were the last of the Balkan peoples to achieve their liberation from the Ottomans. Aside from self-governance on the village level, the Bulgarians didn't have any of their own institutions. They remained under the Greek Patriarch of Constantinople longer than any of the others, even longer than the Greeks themselves. This overshadowing of their culture was so severe that by the 19th century, the Bulgarian identity was completely unknown outside of the Balkans. Bulgarian cultural revival would be ignited by a number of histories written by monks in the late 18th century. However, these books were not read by people in Bulgaria, but rather by Bulgarians receiving an education abroad. Schools using the Bulgarian language rather than Greek weren't allowed to be set up until 1835. The first regular Bulgarian periodical wouldn't be printed until 1844, and it was printed in Smyrna rather than in Bulgaria itself, which only had a single printing press in the entire country until 1877. Like the other Balkan peoples, the first step they took towards independence wasn't against the Turks, but against the Greeks. In 1870, the National Church of Bulgaria was made independent of the Patriarch of Constantinople, This made the Russians concerned because their foreign policy in the Balkans, up to this point, was based on appealing to their common religious identity. The Russians had hoped that they could use the less solidified Bulgarian national identity to their advantage in controlling them. But after the Crimean War, they were forced to stay out of the Balkans for a time, leaving the Bulgarian nationals to their own devices. Although the Russian state couldn't get more involved in Bulgaria, non-governmental groups did. In 1858, the Slavic Benevolent Society was founded in Russia, which served to represent Pan-Slavic interests outside of Russia. They provided scholarships for Bulgarian and other Slavic Balkan peoples to attend school in Russia. Its goal was to unify the Pan-Slavic movement under the Tsar. However, this scheme somewhat backfired, as many Bulgarian students came into contact with radical Russian students, and therefore became influenced by ideas from Western Europe such as liberalism and Marxism. The intellectual and cultural revivals were more the interests of middle and upper class Bulgarians, but the peasantry were more concerned with land and tax reforms. Like much of the empire, taxes were collected by local notables, who had built up their own support systems that skimmed tax money from the capital. The Ottomans wanted tax collectors that would be loyal to the Sultan, and to do this they tried to appoint people not from the regions they were collecting taxes from. This resulted in people who didn't have any connections to these places ruthlessly collecting taxes. And in order to make sure that they didn't build up their own local support systems, they had to be frequently relocated. This managed to improve revenue collection for the Sultanate, but it made the locals paying the taxes angry, because what they wanted was to pay less and fewer taxes rather than being taxed more efficiently. Despite all the weaknesses and setbacks, the Bulgarians still developed their own national identity. But the ultimate goal of forming a sovereign nation-state would have two separate paths to choose. Older generations preferred a gradual liberation from Ottoman control. They wanted to gain more and more power within the borders of Bulgaria itself until the only thing left was a formal suzerainty to the Ottomans, at which point they could declare independence without conflict. On the other hand, younger generations who had been educated abroad, wanted to follow the Greek and Serbian model and gain independence through revolt. These younger Bulgarians were influenced by Western ideas of democracy and socialism and wanted to achieve their goals without foreign assistance. They formed revolutionary organizations outside of Bulgaria as a means of gaining material foreign aid as well as geographic distance from the eyes of Constantinople. They wanted to spark a revolution, but there was no impetus, Economically, things were doing pretty well. First, they benefited from the economic revival of the 18th century, and they further benefited as other areas of the empire were lost to independence movements or foreign powers. Because of these territorial losses, the Ottomans had to shift more of their purchases of resources to Bulgaria, which further enriched them. This resulted in Bulgarians of all classes benefiting, and when things are economically good, it's hard to convince people that they should rock the boat. But while the Bulgarians were having trouble getting their revolutions off the ground, Montenegro was starting to look like a normal country. Montenegro is an interesting case in the history of the Balkans. The Ottomans claimed control over it, and no other power sought to dispute this claim. However, the amount of control actually exerted over Montenegro seems to be nil. Montenegro had a governance that was at least somewhat similar to that of Albania. And that most authority was held by major families, whom most secondary sources refer to as tribes. Governing over the whole, at least in name, was a bishop and a governor. There was no regular collection of taxes, no army, and no central administration of justice, and there was very little in terms of transportation infrastructure. The bishops who ruled were chosen from a single family, and when one bishop died, they would pick his nephew to succeed him regardless of whether or not the bishop wanted to have a family of their own. There had been a rivalry between the bishop and the governor for generations, but eventually the governorship was abolished and all the powers were centered in the bishop, whatever that was worth. Under the rule of a single bishop, Montenegro pursued a foreign policy focusing on gaining a port on the Adriatic Sea in order to improve trade relations. All the while doing this, the bishop received financial support from the Russians, who provided most of the budget for the Montenegro government, who at the time were incapable of collecting taxes. The last bishop of Montenegro, Peter II, died in 1851, and was succeeded by his nephew, Danilo, who with the permission of the Russians and the Habsburgs, converted the bishopric into a principality. It subsequently dropped the title of bishop and became Prince Danilo. Under his rule, Montenegro began to implement military and legal reforms, and in 1858 the borders of Montenegro were formally established after centuries of ill-defined ones. Despite these successes, however, Danilo was assassinated in 1860, and was succeeded by his nephew, Nicholas I, who would reign over Montenegro through the rest of the century and through the First World War. With the leaders now in place, the Balkans are set for the final push to achieve independence from their Turkish overlords, which we will cover next time. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can reach me on Twitter at GrantGHurst or at HMME underscore podcast. You can also reach me by email, East at gmail.com. If you want to dig into the sources used for this episode, you can find the post for this episode on historyofthemodernmiddleeast.com. Also, if you're so inclined, it would be appreciated if you could give the podcast a rating and a review on whatever podcasting service you're using, especially iTunes. It helps the podcast get more attention and allow me to justify putting more time into it. Thanks for listening.